podcast from St. John's Lafayette Square, journeying now through Lent. In these conversations, we explore the disciplines we need to live our faith here and now. This is an exploration into the shape of a life well-lived, that is, a life oriented to receiving the gift of belonging in God's life. Today I'm here with Dr. Stephen Cook, a professor at Virginia Theological Seminary. He's here to talk with us about reading the Old Testament. As a way of getting started, would you share an image of God that resonates most with you right now? Ah, an image for God. All right, um, I'm gonna tell you about a painting that really struck my eyes recently and you can you can look it up if you want to. It's kind of a surrealistic mm-hmm. painting. Um, and it's by a, a guy named Wolfgang Lettel, and it's called The High Council. It's kind of cool because the imagery is this figure, this face, and he's looks like he's got a windmill all around his head. But when you look more closely, it's kind of like a torture scene because the, the uh, peg of the windmill is stuck right through his head. And then in the background of the picture, you see Jesus carrying his cross. And mm. it's just an amazing little painting. And it uh, speaks to me of the vulnerability of God, but also the, the power of a lifestyle of being transparent, being willing to share your woundedness, because the planks in the windmill are a symbol, at least I think they're a symbol of the Holy Spirit and God's wind being in your sails and empowering you. And then the great sort of mystery of this image is that what the world thinks of power, you know, well, well-connected people, people with great funding and uh, a large uh, group of friends with, with lots of money and connections, that's the exact opposite of how God operates to get in line with what will prosper in the long run in God's time. You've got to get into those currents of God, those wind currents that can turn those windmill, those windmill sails. So So you've spent a lot of your life studying the Old Testament. Um, I wonder when did you first begin being interested in this? And was there a particular person who first uh, sparked your interest? Very good questions. Uh, So I was kind of raised in a family that really valued Bible reading. And my mom was really a a church person. It was back in the day, you know, back in the sixties when not every mom had a full-time paying job. So she was kind of all around the church and she had studied the Bible in college. And so she really encouraged me, but I think where I really caught the bug was when I went, to college myself and took religious studies courses and realized, okay, you can study this stuff with real rigor and really asking the sorts of questions and getting the kinds of answers that speak to the meaning of life and your place in existence and what's this all about anyway. And you can do it using tools like Hebrew language and archaeology and various types of scholarly criticism. And I was just all over that. So uh, I uh, 
I went on an archaeological dig my uh, junior year, and I uh, was just kind of, I had caught the bug at that point, and I, hmm. I gave up my other ideas as to what to do <laughs> going forward and just said, all right, let's try seminary. <laughs> so I've actually never left seminary since since then <laughs> right right my entire life i'm what am i i was born in 62 so ever since 1984 when i started seminary i've been in seminary one way or another yeah yeah so this this starts off you know your your mom is a person who like introduces you to the bible um and certainly in like a very dedicated way. And then as you, you know, went to college, um, the Bible became this way that you could wrestle with really big questions, like the meaning of life and, and all of these important things. Um, right. Exactly. There's all sorts of spiritual practices nowadays and people uh, hire spiritual directors and there's all there's all manner of different ways to try to access spirituality but the sort of the traditional Jewish and Christian way has always been just regular feeding and drinking at the word of God and as you do it regularly and you do it in a way that's prayerful and that's open to hearing God's word and receiving God's word, you do start to become the kind of person over the long haul that knows more about, has a more uh, intuitive sense about the meaning of life. It sort of mm -hmm. grows in you. It grows in you as you, you take more time feeding and drinking at the word of God. Yeah, um, I, I would say that's right. It's not, you don't open the Bible and you will find in um, clear, plain language, this is the meaning of life, but it's more <laughs> like, it's more like you keep reading the stories and you, you know, the Bible very rarely moralizes or just comes right out and, and in plain language gives you information like you'd read in a newspaper. I mean, that's why, mm -hmm. that's why the prophets and, and Jesus spoke in stories and parables and metaphors all the time because the meaning of life isn't something that you can read in a beach novel <laughs> mm -hmm. you know and it's not modern many modern books you know they try to put in the margin the main points you're supposed to get out of out of the text if you're you know too busy getting a suntan to read the entire the entire book uh, you can pull out the bullet points but the Bible is just simply not like that. It, the only way that you're going to get meaning out of it is to put the time in and focus. And you'll also have to pull out some resources to help you along. So it's not, uh, the Bible can't be this instruction manual. So if you come right. <laughs> wondering, you know, like, what kind of a life am I supposed to live? Like, who am I supposed to be? And what is reality and God and everything else? Um, you can't go, there's no way to just go and say, okay, this verse says this. So clearly here's the instruction manual. Um, but exactly. it seems like, it, it seems like more of like a relationship and an art of, of uh, encountering 
um, the word of God through a lot of different witnesses that speak back and forth to each other and, um, and aren't exactly clear. Um, yeah. In terms of what modern people, in terms of what we are thinking in our, our lives about. Yeah, I wonder if sometimes people give up reading the Bible is because people have sent them there with kind of a false expectation. Oh, mm -hmm. this is a really good uh, tour guide to life or a really good instruction manual or a really good handbook for life. And then you get there and it's not that. And mm -hmm. so you leave disappointed. And yet that's that's never what it was supposed to, to be at all. It's really a means. It's... Uh, some people think of it as love letters from God. Some people think of it as amazing, really well-written poetry and stories that connect you with great, profound insights and truths, much as much as a an amazing novel by a great writer like James Joyce or Hemingway or or, or Sartre. Uh, you know, it's. Uh, it takes a lot more work to read than a handbook or a, a, mm -hmm. a guide, a guidebook. Uh, so I guess, you know, it, for somebody who um, may have the experience of, uh, you know, coming to worship on Sunday and you know, opening up the scriptures there um, together in, in community, um, but has never dived deeper than that um how would you recommend just beginning some sort of a, a practice of study yeah well i'd highly recommend it i mean again i and, and there's actually been studies where they've looked at people who are trying different uh methods of becoming more spiritual or becoming a better disciple you know what works is it following the labyrinth every day or <laughs> is is it uh contemplative prayer you know and uh all of those things are good and have their place but what always comes back in the studies is that disciplined daily reading of the bible and then praying afterwards and if you can i know this is almost completely impossible being a dad myself with a teenager teenage daughter but if you can read the, the Bible in a, in a family setting, at least short, short pieces after dinner or before bedtime, uh, that really makes a difference in becoming a person closer to God, a, a person who's maturing spiritually. And so how to do that, there's many different ways. One thing that's, if you're up for a challenge, there's a a book that came out that I've contributed to, but a lot of people have. It's by Forward Movement, and it's called, it's a book that's just called The Bible Challenge. Read the Bible in 365 days. It's edited by a priest, Merica Zabriskie, who's a friend of mine. And you can literally read the entire Bible in a year. It's for the ambitious, but it would be a nice thing for a church to kind of undertake together. Mm -hmm. and even have little support groups to uh, talk about the readings and then for each day and that they don't include Sundays because the assumption is like you said many people on Sunday will go into church and hear the hear the lectionary read out loud 
But the other days of the week, you're reading stuff, and then there's a one-page meditation that goes with the reading, and they're all by Episcopal um, priests, heads of schools, bishops, seminary professors. If you're not up for that, there's other other ways as well. You, you can um, there's a, a lecture. There's of course the uh, the daily office lectionary of the Episcopal Church, and there's apps that will tell you the readings. And then there's also a new daily lectionary that's geared to the Revised Common Lectionary, which most Episcopal churches use on Sundays. And in that lectionary, it'll give you Bible readings that are sort of building up to the Sunday readings and then following then on Monday and Tuesday, you follow up on what you what you heard on Sunday. And mm-hmm. so the, both of those sort of daily readings are available on the web or through apps and studying those can kind of tune what you're doing at home into what's going on in church. And then another, a fourth way would just be to dive in at any particular point of interest, like the book of Psalms is very powerful. The stories of Genesis are always of interest. The book of Isaiah is great, especially during Lent. I'm leading a a big um, five-week series through the miracle of Zoom with a church down in the Carolinas, and uh, we're working through just the, the servant poems in Isaiah 40 to 55, and having an amazing time just spending time in Lent looking at the servant songs. So all of those are kind of ways to to get started. But uh, the important thing is is to start and and do something manageable. Don't set the goal too too big or you'll feel disappointed when you start to fail. And also begin with the Old Testament. (laughs) Too many people have neglected the Old Testament and it's three quarters of the Christian scriptures. So I, th- I would highly recommend picking something like Psalms, Isaiah, Deuteronomy, Genesis, the big important books that Jesus loved so, so dearly. Yeah, sometimes what I hear from people is that in the New Testament, you know, certainly through the person of, of Jesus who is healing and uh doing miracles and showing extraordinary love. There is this, um, there is this, uh, image of God that is loving and interested in redemption. And sometimes when people, uh, approach books of the old Testament, particularly ones that are filled with violence, it seems like it feels like a different God. And I wonder how you would respond to that. I am so glad you asked that because this is kind of like <laughs> this has kind of been like uh, my whole life challenge is to try to convince seminarians to try to you know go out and thank God for people like you, Savannah, who have become priests and are standing up against Marcionism and, <laughs> and, and so on. Imagine just do this little mental exercise of going back to Jesus's time and having the, the, the privilege and the amazing opportunity to talk to Jesus and asking Jesus, um, what do you think of the Old Testament? And of course, his answer would be, what, what do you mean? What's the Old Testament? And as you talk to him for a little while, 
he would uh, gradually dawn on on uh, what you're trying to get at. And he said, oh, you mean the Holy Scriptures. And as you talk to him a little bit further, he might think, oh, you mean the word of God. And uh, then he'd finally probably say something. And we know this because these are quotes from the, from the New Testament. He'd finally end up saying, okay, you mean the teaching, the Torah, what uh, the guidance for our lives. And suddenly you realize the only scripture Jesus had and what was scripture for, for Jesus was what we call the Old Testament. But he had no knowledge of an Old Testament that's somehow inferior or more violent than, than the new. It was the entire scripture that directed, nourished, oriented his, his ministry and what he, what he presented. The loving God that he presented is the God of the Hebrew scriptures and, and couldn't possibly be any other God. But yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm remembering your talking in the beginning, the image of the vulnerable God. Um, and, and there seems to be in, in the old Testament as well. Um, a kind of vulnerability right out of Isaiah 50, where the, the servant of God who is identified with, with God in Isaiah 50, 10, um, the audience that's witnessing all the suffering of this figure, they're asked, well, who among you fears the Lord? That's God. And who obeys the voice of the servant? That's this figure who's sort of the apprentice of God or the incarnation of God's lifestyle of transparency, of intimate openness and sharing. So all of those things that we see in this time in, in Lent, going through the stations of the cross with Jesus, this is just directly out of texts like Isaiah 50, Isaiah 52, Isaiah 53, Isaiah 49. Um, and I'm, uh, I think it's just a shame that Christians often don't realize that because oftentimes the New Testament just doesn't repeat all the lovely poetic truths of these poems in Isaiah because we, the, tech, the New Testament's assuming that people have this resource, the First Testament, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, that's available. So we're not going to repeat all of the meanings of God's openness, transparency, and vulnerability, because it's already there. And you're supposed to take the New Testament as a launching point to go back and read the Old Testament poems and delve more deeply into what, what the deep spiritual meaning is of what Jesus is doing in Jesus's passion and, and uh, suffering. That, that it's assumed that the Old Testament is um, this background. Yeah, I think but, it's assumed that readers will, will be interested and will wanna see where this is coming from and will be led back to the Hebrew Bible. Mm -hmm. um, some of the scriptures that are potentially frightening sounding. I mean, there certainly is quite a lot of violence um, and quite a lot of passages that it, it seems like God may even be in favor of some sorts of violence. I wonder how you, you reconcile those things. Mm. 
you know, there is so much interest in, in this question that I've actually developed a course. It's a full semester course. But what we do is we go through all of the classic passages. And it's interesting, they're in both testaments. So actually, the course starts with some of the most violent things in the New Testament, like when Jesus um, knocks Saul off his horse flat on his back and blinds him. I mean, what a terrifying, mm-hmm. violent strike. <laughs> and, uh, mm-hmm. and then Paul repeats the same thing. He, in his ministry, he does the same thing to a poor magician. Um, and it's a, it's a it's ter- ter- terrifying uh, judgments that are going on here. But, um, you know, the point is, and it, it bears repeating as many times as you can say it, the reason God engages in these knocking people off their horse kind of activities is really so that ultimately they are happier, more joyful, more, you know, the, the course of life that, say, Saul, who became Paul, was was set on was was ruinous. He was murderously killing people. <laughs> um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, you know, I think he ended up being incredibly thankful that he got knocked off his horse <laughs> and changed the world mm-hmm, because of it. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of what God does. And we could go on and on. We, we you know, you look, we look uh, in this course, we look at, at Jesus out in the sea storm. And what is that? I, and the way the, the language in the Greek there, when Jesus attacks the storm is incredibly violent. And it's sort of a recapitulation of things like the, um, the Red Sea crossing where God defeats the chaos snake. And of course, the, one of the main symbols of, of Pharaoh right on his headdress is the snake. So it's, mm-hmm. uh, and one of the first stories in the Exodus is where Aaron's and Moses's rods become snakes and eat, eat up uh, the uh, snakes that come from Pharaoh's uh, magicians. So all of these stories end up being, a, you know, that, that story about Jesus attacking the chaos storm, this, the spirit of the cosmic chaos snake uh, the, these are stories about about Jesus violently rescuing the world from chaos, sin, and death, and it takes it takes a mighty arm to do that, and Jesus is willing to wield that. Uh, but really, the only way that one one appreciates these stories is to see a continuity between the testaments. They're telling the same story. One mm-hmm. is not more violent than another, although obviously it, you can't just read it like a beach novel or a handbook. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a very pedestrian, flat-footed reading will will make you think, oh, my gosh, how could Jesus have killed this big army? I mean, how could God have killed this big army in the Red Sea and or send the flood, all of that? Well, you got to read these things a little bit more deeply to see, you know, what is what are the metaphors? What are the archetypes? What is the deeper structure of this message? Yeah, as you're describing this, the uh, virtue of patience is really coming out to me. Um, Just, I can think of so many times, you know, having a particular question about, you know, what kind of life I should live or or what else. Um, And it seems like going to, you know, one particular story in scripture and, trying to derive a moral out of it um, really quickly as to um, 
this means I should do this mm. um, actually like shows our own um, impatience and, and perhaps uh, uh, perhaps our uh, desire to, um, uh, I don't know, simplify God, make yeah. God smaller um, as if That's right. God is just That's this. exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. God is Famous just Anglican. Um, J.B. Phillips once wrote a book about your God being too small. We, uh, the natural human instinct is to have a God in a box, you know, mm -hmm. that uh, will be there when on our terms, when we need it. And uh, we're a very impatient culture. <laughs> so mm -hmm. yes, mm -hmm. the virtue of patience. The other thing our culture does is it comes to texts of the Bible. This is what modernism has taught us to do. We, we come to them in order to judge them or to critique them, hmm. to place value judgments on on them. And, you know, in a way you've got to have patience and you've also has to have, have to have humility to read these texts. It's it's okay to, to, to be a critical reader, but you've also got to let, let the text criticize you, criticize your lifestyle, criticize your Western analytical culture criticize your impatience. What does that look like, allowing the text to criticize your life? I mean, I think at the most simplest level, it's a matter of your spiritual stance towards the text. Uh -huh. I think you come at it a little differently if you pray beforehand that God would draw closer to you and you to God through, through this medium of language. And... Uh, this language is, is, is love language, it's personal language, it's transparent, it's deep, it's, uh, it requires um, hard work to, to plumb, the, plumb the depths. But mm -hmm. if the text may at first seem repulsive or difficult. I wonder if over the course of this last year, uh, for you and your uh, relationship with uh, reading the Bible, has anything changed or or anything been clarified for you um, during this last year? Mm. I mean, I'm constantly trying to see new things and, and, and hear new words from God. And I, I think most recently, I've become more and more fascinated with, with visual interpretation kind of connecting the the texts not just with explanations and commentary but but with various artworks and visual forms and uh you know for example we were talking about jesus calming the storm there's a beautiful rembrandt painting of that scene and uh, it used to be in the isabel stewart gardner um, museum in boston and it was it was stolen tragically from from the museum but you can fortunately we have all sorts of high resolution images of that rembrandt and there's just so much that uh, speaks to me when i read the stories in the bible and then look at what rembrandt's done with them and kind of make connections allow the bible to interpret the image allow the image to be in conversation with the bible that mm -hmm. that sometimes um, art, especially visual art, has an ability to uh, help us approach a mystery in a better way. I mean, I, I guess yeah. one thing that I'm sensing 
in talking with you today is that instead of an instruction manual or instead of something that's just a recording of facts, uh, if instead reading the scriptures is about learning how to uh, come close to a mystery and uh, whether that mystery is God, uh, I guess humans too, you know, uh, creation. I mean, all of these mysteries. Yeah, I think that's, that's right. A lot of what serious disciplined um, Bible reading does is it broadens your imagination, if you will. Mm -hmm. Uh, not imagination in the sense of fiction, but imagination in in the sense of an openness to existence being broader than just what we encounter in our workaday lives, Mm -hmm. that there's a a cosmic backdrop that you need to begin to get some insight into if you're really going to begin to find direction and and energy. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. And a willingness to um, experience discomfort. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Because, you know, even beauty can be uncomfortable. Staring up at a beautiful night sky can make you shrink and realize how insignificant you are. And that kind of hurts. Part of what you just said reminds me of Psalm 8, which is doing just that, saying, you know, when I consider creation, what is the human being um, that you even give a thought, oh God, to to the human being? And then yet we're in the Imago Dei. We have this incredibly special position in the cosmos. And so it's that wonder and uh, then that spiritual uh, tension or paradox between realizing your frailty and your tininess, but also embracing it as a window to God's empowerment and stepping back enough to make room for God to shine in and step in. That, that whole mystery is, I think, a big part of Lent. It's, it's really huge. That mystery, that the Lent is a, a time of preparing for a mystery, living in mystery. And, yeah, and, and also, often, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, often, and um, when I hear the word mystery, you know, I think of, uh, you know, choose your own adventure novel or something, or, you know, like so many of our TV shows where it's like, you get the answer by the end, like it resolves, <laughs> like you figure out who did it, you know, like, yeah. um, and that's, not exactly the same kind of um, mystery that we're talking about uh, God, God being. Yeah. And so, you know, with any relationship, even, you know, with a, a human love affair, you don't want to have the complete answer to who this other, <laughs> to who this other significant is you'd never want to plumb the depths because that's part of the part of the erotic attraction is that it's a constant mystery. There's always new things to discover in the other, in the other person and the other person's constantly discovering new, 
new things in you and neither one of you are ever really just a uh, fixed entity but it's a moving you're you're both moving targets Mm -hmm. so that's the kind of mystery that god is that even in heaven or in the reign of god we'll never fully experience everything that god is it's it's impossible and and neither will we ever be free of of pain or of shrinking (laughs) or of um reverent fearful awe so if if we're if we're thinking that finally we'll get relief from any of those things uh, when when all is said and done it's just i think we're going to be disappointed (laughs) in in heaven and uh, maybe some people won't even want to be there (laughs) 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 if it's if it's this uh constant experience of awe uh, yeah, constant, constant feeling that you're not in control, constant feeling that you'll never have all the answers. Mm-hmm. It's a little uncomfortable. Yeah, at not having all the answers, not being a master, not being able to control everything, or even to understand, you know, our choices um, that we do have some control over. But it's to be able to you know, look and see those limits and not hold them in contempt. Right. That, that that being part of what it means to be a creature. Right. And somehow um, that's what about hundred, how many people are in the Bible? Thousands of people, um, <laughs> thousands of people, thousands of creatures. Uh, I don't know, these ravens that come to Elijah, like thousands of creatures have been, um, trying to learn how to do um trying to come close to this mystery and of both the uh infinite limitless love of god and our finite um our finite abilities and to see those two and not hold that in contempt yes that's yeah. right. To to embrace, actually embrace. Embrace, it. yeah, that's a good word. Yeah. 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 Well, I wonder if you had only one word to describe what this practice of of reading the Bible means to you. What would it be? I would, you know, being a Bible scholar, I would maybe quote a Bible verse, Psalm nineteen, verse ten, that. This this scripture, this study of scriptures, and 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 the truth of God here is more to be desired than gold, and sweeter also than than honey. Um, we all, most of us, like like gold. We'd love to have plenty of gold, um, and uh, who doesn't like honey? Who doesn't love the sweetness of of honey drizzling, <laughs> drizzling in your mouth. It's, uh, it's wonderful. So that, that love of biblical study and that desire for God, as one would desire a nice shiny bar of gold or a, uh, a delicious um, honey drenched uh, cluster of granola and almonds for breakfast when you're really hungry. If you can approach 
the study of the scriptures with that kind of desire and longing. Mm -hmm. That's, I think that's what you're aiming at. That's kind of the stance that we were talking about when um, you try to motivate yourself to, to get into the, the word of God. Yeah, that's really, that's really beautiful. Um, all of that desire and longing, certainly not one word, perhaps that says something about my own desire to uh, <laughs> reduce mysteries to one, one word. word um, <laughs> one word would be, uh, I guess, um, desire. Desire. Huh. Yeah, that's great. And that ties into what you were saying about mystery. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes desire and mystery and longing and uh, how uh, beautiful and strange it is to feed and drink at the word of God, uh, at the word of a God who uh, seeks to be vulnerable to us and in us and through us. Exactly. Exactly.